0: Certainly, I wish I could be with you in person, but just to be on the cautious side as I recover from COVID, I thought it would be best to join you in this way. Uh, We're looking this summer at some of the great hymns, the songs that shape us. Now, as much as I love this theme, I mean, I picked it out, and I've heard from many of you who appreciate this intersection of music and theology, it's actually harder than I thought to preach about music. Elvis Costello once said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And maybe the same could go for preaching about music. So every week this summer, our pastors are kind of wading into waters that we don't really understand. I mean, we went to seminary to, to learn how to parse Greek verbs and to exegete Romans, but I, I never learned to love Tchaikovsky the same way that Greg Hobbs does. Which let me take this moment, shameless plug, uh, for our Highlander Concert Series Finale. This coming Thursday at the Meyerson, uh, singers from our choir will be joining together with, uh, with singers from choirs from around our city, and we'd love for you to join us as they perform Verdi's Requiem. All the details are on the back of your worship guide. We'd love for you to be there with us. But think about how pervasive music is in our culture Jeremy Begby is a professor at Duke, and he has spent his life writing about this intersection of music and theology, and he writes this in a recent book. Even if we never go near a concert hall or switch on a radio or Spotify or go to films, music will seek us out in airports and train stations, in doctor's offices and dentist chairs, at the hairdressers and in shopping malls, pubs and clubs. We do not have to find it. It finds us. Music is the ocean we swim in. Isn't that true? Like when was the last time you went to a restaurant and didn't hear music in the background? It is so true that there is a genre of music dedicated to this one location, elevator music. Like you can't escape it anywhere. It's the ocean we swim in. So why not take some time to explore more deeply these great songs of our faith? Now, our hymn today was written by a guy named Augustus Toplady. He was born in England in the year 1740. His father died shortly thereafter while serving with the Royal Marines. When he was 15 years old, Augustus went to this revival in an Irish barn, and it was there that he surrendered his life to Jesus and he he decided to go into ministry. He served as a priest in the Church uh, Church of England until he was 38 years old when he died of tuberculosis. Now, he wrote a number of hymns, but this gem endures to this day, Rock of Ages. Uh, There's one hymn, Historian, which I didn't know that was a thing, but this writer said that Rock of Ages, uh, for many years, was in more hymnals around the world than any other English-written hymn. It was written in the year 1773. Now, there is a story, which may or may not be Snopes approved, that Augustus wrote this hymn while hiding and taking refuge in the cleft of a rock during a storm. And this particular rock formation still stands in North Somerset, England to this day. So take it or leave it, at least it makes for a good story. It starts off with these gripping words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure." cleanse from guilt, and make me pure. Be of sin the double cure. In other words, sin has two components. Sin is both a guilt and a power. It's a guilt that has to be atoned for, but it's also a power that we are enslaved by, all of humanity, and we have to be set free. The song continues. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone No amount of good works or religiosity can do anything to atone or to set us free. Salvation, deliverance, atonement must come from outside us. Thou and thou alone, God. So just to prepare you, uh, this is pretty much going to be a message about sin. And right now some of you are thinking, like, really the one day I decide to come to church and it's the sin talk. And I bet that some of you have had experiences in churches where, you know, sin was like the favorite topic. Some of the ways that we've heard sin talked about have been so destructive, like the judgmentalism and the condemnation. Well, I hope that's not going to be what we experience together today. So this morning, uh, we're going to trace the origin of sin. All for sin could not atone. Where did that all begin? And what does that mean for us? This takes us back to the first chapters of the Bible, where in Genesis, God creates the world and he calls it good. And he makes human beings in his own image. And there's this perfect harmony between God and, pe- with, uh, God and people and creation. Everything is in right relationship. Then in Genesis 3, the devil, symbolized by the serpent, uh, comes to Eve and he says to her, You know, about this God who created you— How do you know he's really worth trusting? The devil plants this little seed of suspicion. Can God really be trusted to do what's best for you? And so Adam and Eve, they decide that that life would be better without trusting God. Their eyes are opened, and now something's different. There's There's this little brokenness. It's a profound story. We're told that God comes looking for for the man and, and God says, Adam, where are you? And we could just reflect on that question for like hours. Where are you? Of course, God is not asking this because he needs specific coordinates. He's not lacking information. God is summoning. He's inviting Adam into a relationship. Adam says to God, I heard you and I was afraid. For the first time in human existence, now there's there's a gap, there's this divide between God and man fear, hiding. God says to the man, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And so now there's a confrontation. And Adam, in this moment, has this wonderful character-defining choice to make where he decides to take the high road of personal responsibility and accountability. And he says to God, and this is the King James, that woman thou gavest me. It's her fault. Like, she made me do it. And so right there in the Garden of Eden, blame enters history, and we have been doing it ever since. Sin creates this separation from God and then blame and separation from one another. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, this is real important. Sin, as we look at this story, it was not so much about breaking a rule, like as if God was, you know, created this little rule to mess with us or something. Sin was not just about breaking a rule. It was the breaking of a relationship, a turning away from God. And the consequence of that was a broken relationship now between the man and the woman. So here's a concept to hold on to. Sin is a broken relationship, not just a broken rule. We are relational beings. We're created in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in our DNA. And there is no relationship more central to who we are than our, our relationship to God. Sin is a broken relationship, not just a broken rule. And then the consequence of this sin, it it escalates, it snowballs, and over time the human family is torn apart by sin. What's What's set in motion from the moment Adam turned away from God is a kind of brokenness of the human heart so that we too are predisposed to turn away from God and to think that we're better off on our own. What follows is a downward cycle of guilt, shame, anger, murder, lust that just unravels through the scriptures and through history. The Apostle Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 1. In fact, let's look at this together. And as we read through this, uh, see if you could pick up a phrase that gets repeated in these verses. This is Romans 1, and I'll be reading from the NIV here. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 25 They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Paul continues in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Then Paul, the Apostle Paul, kind of takes the gloves off. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Isn't that great? They get so bored that they invented new ways to sin. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's like Paul was in a bad mood when he wrote this. So, did you catch that phrase that keeps coming up in Romans chapter one again and again? God gave them over. It's a curious way of putting it. it. Doesn't say God punished them or smited them because of their sin. The idea is that God removed his hand and he allowed humanity to pursue the desires of their twisted hearts. And depraved minds. In other words, he gave them what they wanted a life without God. This, by the way, is, is such a powerful thing that God loves us enough. He has such regard for, the, for your ultimate freedom and my ultimate freedom that he will let us pursue even that which leads us further and further away from him, even though it breaks his heart. And if you think about sin in this way, well then the consequence of sin is really, it's getting what you want. It's choosing a life apart from God. And that's a hard truth, that if you desire to live outside God's will, outside his knowledge, outside his love, then he will let you have it. And the ultimate result of that, when a person finally and fully wants to be left alone by God, that's hell. It's life apart from God. You know, sometimes people will say, how can you believe in a God who would send people to hell? And I think it's worth, it's worth at least considering what Dallas Willard says about this, and I've shared this before. He says, I fully believe that God will welcome everyone into heaven who can stand it. That if someone spends a lifetime rejecting God, rejecting his love, well then why would they want to spend eternity in his presence or to put it a little bit differently, this is from C.S. Lewis. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. Paul says the human heart is predisposed to this kind of evil. My heart, your heart, every one of us. Whether we like it or not, it's, it's true even of the, the beautiful babies we baptize here. These little bundles of depravity. Our children are really these little sinners who one day are going to grow up to be big sinners just like us. Paul says their thinking became futile and God gave them over to a depraved mind. Another way of putting that, sin makes us stupid, right? We don't think right. Anyone here ever made a bad, like, depraved mind kind of decision? I'll give you one example. Mike Bro tells a story about this ER doctor in Kentucky. And a patient was brought to the hospital after a car wreck, and they were examining his his injuries. And as they did, this doctor noticed that that there was a weird mark around the patient's neck. And so the doctor asked him about this. I said, well, my wife and I were sitting on the front porch, and we were having happy hour. And we had just bought one of those electric shock collars for our dog, and it came with a remote control. We were trying to train the dog not to run away and not to bark. And so we got to wondering how far this remote control would reach. So the guy said to his wife, you know what, I'll put it on, and I'll drive down the road. Okay, this is his plan. I'll put on the collar, drive down the street, and you take the remote. And when I honk the horn, when you hear me honk the horn, press the button, and we're going to see how far it goes. So he put it on, and he starts driving down the road, and he honks the horn, and she presses the button, and wham, it just about knocks him out. He gets disoriented. He starts swerving all over the road as he's going down the hill now. Well, what the wife can't see is that there's a car coming up the hill, coming toward him. And the driver of that car starts honking his horn. And so she zaps him again and he swerves and the car honks again and she zaps him again. And next thing you know, he's wrecked the car. Now, I know that some of you have actually wondered what it would be like to wear one of those collars. So there it is. For the record, not a good idea. Our thinking became futile. Sin, it, it, it makes its way into our thinking. We make bad choices, hurtful decisions. The consequence is not just a list of broken rules. It's a wake of broken relationships. And most of us, we know the sting of that regret when we look in the rearview mirror and we see all the ways that we've hurt other people, often those we love. You know, sometimes a friend will make a choice that from the outside it looks so dumb and will say things like, What were you thinking? Like, how in their right mind could they have ever made that choice? It cost them their marriage, their career, their reputation. How could they do that to their family? It's a depraved mind. And again, it's it's not about the rules. It's about broken relationships with God and then with people. Now, here's an objection that maybe some of you are sort of thinking through. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I get it, we're all fallen. You got issues, I got issues, we've all got issues. But see, my stuff, my stuff is sort of the small sin stuff. You know, compared to the other people around me, even some of the people I see in this church, like, I'm not so bad. Like on a sliding sin scale, I'm doing pretty good. Most of my sins are the little sins. Like white lies, grudges, I don't know. Playful gossip, that doesn't really hurt anybody. So here's a warning. The little sins can actually be the most dangerous because we don't think we need to do anything about them. Right? We look at big time scandals and we read you know, on social media or we see on you know, TMZ type stuff, royal benders in Vegas. That's what sin looks like. Right? We think about alcoholics and adulterers and money launderers, and we say, thank goodness I'm not a sinner like that. C.S. Lewis writes about this in the Screwtape Letters. I mentioned this little book a few weeks ago. It's about a senior devil named Screwtape who's basically training a junior devil how to lead people away from God. And here's what this senior devil Screwtape says about the little sins. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. That's why the little sins can be the most dangerous. And maybe here's the greatest tragedy, that we would get used to these little sins. The real tragedy is that we get used to sin. We kind of drift into what a friend of mine calls sin management. We get used to broken relationships, the the damage sin does in our lives and in this world. We just get used to it. It's like Dallas summers. Eventually, we just get used to it. So just to make this real clear, that is not God's design for your life. And so, one day, God sent his son, his own son, a new Adam, to undo the curse of the first Adam. Adam. And so we sing in this hymn, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse from guilt and make me pure. God never got used to sin. And when we turned away from him, he turned toward the cross. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, we do not have to live as slaves to sin Cleanse from guilt and make me pure. And for 2,000 years, the the practice that has helped Jesus' followers turn back to God and to receive the forgiveness of the cross is confession. Now, just to clarify, confession is not what we can do to fix our relationship with God, we cannot fix it. Thou must save, and thou alone. Confession is not about earning, it's about turning. Turning back to God so that He can wash me clean. So just to get practical here, confession is about being honest about our sin. It's owning up to whatever it is that has led to this this broken relationship with God and then with others. It's saying before your Heavenly Father— This is where I've turned away from you. This is where I've tried to go and do life on my own. Whatever that looks like for you, whether it's greed or pride or judgmentalism, addiction, elitism, ladder climbing, name dropping, gossip, a battle with lust or pornography, deception, broken promises. More subtle kinds of sin, like nursing resentment, envy, bitterness towards someone in your life, chronic complaining rather, rather than grateful joy, or apathy to injustice and poverty. And will you bring that honestly before God? No holding back. Like, this is my heart. This is my depraved mind. No more hiding. And then ask God to forgive and to set you free. Now, you can choose to go on living as if no one knows about it, right? But here's the thing. You do. You do. You know. And so does God. He already knows. So what's the point in like playing the game and pretending it's not there? It's kind of hard to preach about sin and confession, especially in a week when I've spent all this time sort of isolating on my own. It's hard not to have to look at my own stuff. And so this week I've spent some time in confession and I've tried using the words of this hymn. Words like, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. God, let me, help me to see just how helpless I am without your grace. And something that God Seemed to keep bringing to mind for me in these days this week was pride. And not so much this overt, outward, like, for all to see kind of smugness, but something that often goes unnoticed, something often I'm unaware of. It's like this subtle belief that I have what it takes, that I am capable of solving any challenge in ministry or in my marriage or with my kids, that I can control outcomes, I can finesse people and interactions to get what I want. And it's like the Holy Spirit starts to bring to mind all these little moments, these subtle ways when I try to control people's opinions of me. and How often my motive is not actually the good of someone else. It's really just, it's just the hope that they'll look at me in a positive way. Really, it's, it's about me. And confession is saying, God, I don't, I'm not going to hide this from you. Like, you've revealed it to me, and now will you do what only you can do to wash me clean? And that's the vertical reality of confession, you and God. But see, then it gets horizontal. This is a verse from James. It says, confess your sins to one another. What often happens, what happens when we do that is we begin to experience forgiveness in the flesh. Forgiveness lived out. When we entrust our sin to someone that we can count on to point us back to Jesus, there's power in confessing to one another. I have a friend who goes to a church and uh, they have this Ash Wednesday service every year where at the end of the gathering— Uh, There's this moment of confession and people are invited to come forward with their sins. Well, during that time a few years ago, there was a family with a seven-year-old and and everybody was invited to, you know, write on a sheet of paper to write down their confessions and to bring them forward. Well, most people didn't write their name on their confession and they would fold it up so that, you know, no one else could could see and and they'd come up and they'd pin their confession to the cross at the front of the sanctuary. Well, the seven-year-old that was with this family He wrote with big block letters, God, I am sorry because I lie. And then he signed his name. He didn't fold it up. He pinned it right there on the front of the cross. His parents asked him, why did you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so that no one can see? And this little boy said to his parents, he said, I wrote my name because I want everyone to see. Because if they know it's me, maybe they can help me to stop. And a little child shall lead them. There's power in confessing our sins to one another. When we confess before God and to each other, this this breakthrough happens. A door is opened, a relationship with God is restored. What Bonhoeffer calls a breakthrough to the cross, which then begins to restore our relationships with one another. And I just wonder if this is one of the untapped powers of the church honest, heartfelt confession before God and before one another. And so as we wrap up, I want to invite you to join me in a little time of confession. And I'm not, we're not going to ask you to come forward and put your sin on the cross, although sometime we might. Right now, this is just going to begin with you and God. And maybe there's a time later today when you can share this with someone in your life, someone that you trust to, to point you to Jesus. But I want to invite you to pray with me and to acknowledge your sin, your heart, your depraved mind. And you can just make these your words. Heavenly Father, I have turned away from you. And I am helpless to do anything to heal this on my own. Would you show me the ways and Shine your light and help me to see and then confess the ways that I have turned from you. I've chased other gods. I've placed other things before my commitment, my devotion, my love for you. I've hurt people. I've turned my back on suffering. God, would you forgive me and heal me and set me free, wash me, Savior, wash me, or I die. God, we turn back to you, and would you now fill us with your love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.